you're listening to a very broad history of werewolves and other things, and I am your host, Travis Roy. This is the podcast where I talk about any and every random historical subject that interests me, and hopefully interests you. Thanks for coming along. Hello everybody and welcome back to a very broad history of werewolves and other things. I'm Travis Roy and it's good to have you back. Today will be the other things episode as will most other episodes from this point. Uh, I'll get to the subject matter in a little bit but first I just wanted to thank everybody for their positive feedback and their support for the first episode. It's really it's really great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'm getting listeners from like all over the place, places I didn't really expect. Uh, Ashburn, Virginia, I love you. Thank you so much for all your support. Um, so today we're going to talk about a different subject. Today I wanted to talk about, and I, and I kind of struggled to like come up with a succinct way of phrasing this, but basically I want to talk about movies after theaters. We'll talk about theaters a little bit because we kind of have to, but I want to talk about the watching movies at home and how technology has uh, made that available to us over time. Uh, I, I do think this subject is really important and I also find it really interesting because for one, I love movies. Uh, so I, all aspects of movies I'm gonna find interesting. For two, I'm really interested in the way that technology can guide culture, the impact that it can have on culture, the way that um, art can influence people in isolated areas, say uh, like a rural suburban town in uh, southeastern Michigan, for instance, where I come from. Uh, if you maybe don't have a lot of exposure to the outside world or, or to, um, you know, to, to other cultures, you can always get that through cinema. and. I think that over time, cinema has become far more important in our culture than it ever was, in part because of our ability now to decide which movie we want to watch and when. America did not always have that option. Um, the world in general, I'm going to talk about, Amer you know, most of my podcasts I'll be talking about America specifically, but sometimes the world in general. But American culture was like, it was really tied up in almost like a monoculture kind of situation for a long time because you'd have, say, like these big hit movies that would come out um, and those would end up being the ones that would be, that everybody would be talking about. Like everybody would see, say, Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind or such and such classic. So if you're watching movies in the 20s, 30s, 40s, you really had no reason to think that if you enjoyed a movie that you would ever see it again. Um, there, you know, there wasn't any expectation necessarily that there would be some other form of film or let alone digital format or video format coming down the pike. There was you know, no real reason to expect that at that time because um, technology did not advance accordingly. We didn't, they didn't have the uh, advantage of looking retroactively at, at, at how these formats had changed the way that we do. So um, there was no reason to think that if you enjoyed a movie that, that you would ever see it again. You maybe, um, you know, when it, when it came out, it might be around for a few months if it was really successful, but chances are it wasn't gonna be in theaters that long. And then it was pretty much, I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily gone forever. Some classics, the big ones like Wizard of Oz, 
they and and, and and Disney movies in particular, they end up being shown pretty regularly. Um, they'll come back into theaters periodically. Some of the smaller movies will end up being shown in other venues like uh, cheap theaters and drive-ins and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, might, I might get back into that. But for the most part, you, there would be, be no real reason to think that you're ever going to see such and such movie again unless it was a tremendous success. Um, now contrast that with, say, my experience uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, which is where uh, my mom's boyfriend, I won't say any names in case there's a, <laughs> just in case, um, but where my mom's then boyfriend used to, he had two VCRs and he would, you know, had one stacked on top of the other and he would basically like, like go to the video store and rent, rent a bunch of movies and purchase a bunch of blank VHS tapes and go back home. And like every day before he left to work, he just like started, you know, he'd press play on one VCR and record on the other. And he would just do that for a couple weeks or so. And every now and then he'd just show up at our house with like this box or bag full of, of recorded movies with like the label maker labels on them. They're like red or black with that white raised print. Sometimes there'd be like this wooded kind of color instead, um, like a wood grain. Anyways. And so that gave us the opportunity to turn any movie we wanted into a classic. And this, of course, is going on across the United States. I mean, so we had a copy, say, of Princess Bride, which lots of people had a copy of Princess Bride, and it understandably becomes like this cult classic. I mean, I saw it in theaters, but on VHS, it really flourishes and becomes a cult classic because almost everybody like in the 80s and 90s ends up owning this movie. On the other hand, you had movies, say, like uh, Quick Change or Let It Ride, both, incidentally, movies based on Jay Cronley novels. But these movies like were uh, not huge hits, but at my house, I watched both those movies over and over and over again. Um, they to the point that I you know could recite them and they were household classics so you had people you know I'm not saying I got like some great cultural uh, input from those movies in particular although they are really good um, but everybody's able to kind of determine their own classic determine what's important what's funny to them and they're all and, and it's going to end up shaping our personalities and our worldviews in ways that previously were not as prevalent. So how do we get from here, where we are now, streaming, watching any movie we want, how do we get to here back from, say, 1920s film that you would maybe see in theaters and if you were lucky you'd never, and if you were lucky you'd maybe get to see it one more time again. How do we get to this point? Well, let's start at the very beginning of home projection, and that would be magic lanterns. Um, these things were basically tubes with a light that you could shine through it with a, a kind of a, a empty portal in between where you would slide a pane of glass, and it would usually be painted glass because these things came around. The first magic lanterns were in the 1600s, so that's the 17th century, and they were around and in use up until at least the early 20th century. Um, towards the latter half of the 19th century and the early 1900s, it became more of an object, kind of like a PowerPoint um, projector. It would be like a, a tool for education more often than not. Uh, but initially it would be for entertainment. And there wouldn't, especially the 1600s and the 1700s, or I'm sorry, the, the 1700s and the 1800s, there would not be, say, uh, you know, 
actual photographs, these, these panes of glass that would be being projected would be finely painted images. Um, but over time, in 1881, a, I don't, I'm not sure the inventor's name, but a Canadian patented a continuous slide projector where you would kind of be able to crank the slide and, uh, and you'll be able to almost, if you had certain images that lined up and, and with slight changes, you could create the illusion of movement. Uh, that was that was like again. There's I'm not I'm not going to get into say the Lumiere brothers or, or or the creation of the motion picture camera or the kinetoscope uh, because these things were more for commercial use and for uh, like uh, being put on it at, not necessarily in your homes. So I'm not going to get into that stuff. But there is a whole world of that information that I will dive into almost certainly on another episode. But to to stick with these magic slides, they they, they would these magic lanterns. The, these were very similar to the slide projectors that became really popular in the 1950s and 1980s where it would just like um, display your 35 millimeter film onto a white wall or a white sheet or whatever you wanted. So like say your neighbor takes an extended trip to Guatemala and then comes back and invites you to coffee and you think you're gonna go and sit and have coffee and have a nice chit chat, you actually end up being subjected to like a three and a half hour, uh, you know, run through of somebody else's good time. That's, 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 that's where things go with, with magic lanterns and, and that, that kind of projection. But for a while, that's pretty much the mainstay of, uh, of home projection. Now in 1922, uh, the Pathé brothers in France, Charles Pathé in particular, um, now he'd already gotten involved in phonographs, like 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 albums, but he wanted to be able to, uh, very specifically, he wanted for there to be a way to present film to people to purchase at home and watch Hollywood movies at home. I mean, Hollywood was hardly a thing in, in 1922 um, when he first creates the 9.5 millimeter. Uh, film and 9.5 millimeter camera um, but that's that's his intention first he, he makes it so you can buy a projector 9.5 millimeter film and you can buy you can assemble uh, like pieces of actual full-length movies like uh, like big movies uh, like like uh, the like um, uh, Fritz Long's Metropolis for instance uh, is eventually going to be available on that or the cabinet of Dr. Kilgari. Um, so you can buy these actual movies. And then shortly after that, he releases a, a camera to go with it so you can actually record stuff and play your home, you know, record your own home movies and play those at home. This stuff is mostly big in, in France, in Britain. Um, the, the British actually developed the Pathoscope, like uh, I guess that's, that's probably a, the Charles Path's company or Charles Pathé's company in, uh, in Britain. And or at least it's named after him anyways. And at this point, you're, you're getting uh, all kinds of movies, Mickey Mouse movies, Betty Boot movies, Charlie Chaplin movies. You can buy these movies, you can watch them at, at home. If this doesn't really p take off in America uh, because at that point, people are, are starting to get into, um, you know, 16 millimeter film is already a thing. 35 millimeter film is already a thing. Um, but eight millimeter cameras are, are what's really gonna take off in the 1930s. But the World War II uh, invasion of France is going to really put a, uh, uh, and Britain as well, is gonna really put a, a damper on this technology, kind of leaving space for 16 millimeter film to become the norm and then to a lesser degree, eight, mil eight millimeter film. World War II is gonna mean changes in the, the 
uh, recording industry for for all kinds in all kinds of ways for another reason because in 1928 a uh, a German named uh, Fritz Flumer I think it's pronounced Flumer it's spelled P F L E U M E R in 1928 he kind of perfects a form of magnetic tape recording that had been in process for for decades at least at that point um, in the hands of different inventors but he but he perfects it and uh, it doesn't really make its way across the pond and then World War II breaks out you know a decade or so later and he really nails it down uh, and if this is audio recording is what I'm talking about at this point it's like this magnetic tape audio recording so the big difference in, in not just quality here is the uh, duration of how long recordings can be because uh, traditionally it would have you know these things would have been reel to reel and much 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 shorter you know I'm talking a handful of minutes depending on what era we're talking about and how long they could record so the the uh, the Nazis have this way of recording things and Hitler is using it to record himself giving these lengthy speeches as he's prone to do and they would be aired say from Dusseldorf while he is actually in Berlin to kind of throw off people that might be you know Germans that might be looking to assassinate him or spies or, or, or whoever so the Allies are aware that this new recording technology exists for a while before the end of the war uh, but it's not until the war actually is over that they get their hands on it. there's like a specialized like audio recording unit that actually is picking up uh, from the field you know it's like it's like re like the retrieving technology from the Germans and then reverse engineering it um, so eventually they, they get this technology and this is going to lead to huge innovations not just in audio recording but in video recording and uh, eventually in computers and this kicks off the video revolution that will be kind of, you know that, that which is really in a lot of ways the uh, segue into the digital revolution so while this technology is being developed it's primarily being used within the industry within recording industry it's not something that's that's going into out into people's homes and that kind of thing um, so people here in the early 50s and let's, let's look at the 50s for a while the people at this point if they're gonna watch a movie they're gonna watch it in theaters maybe in a drive-in theater and maybe in a matinee they're probably gonna if they're watching an old movie um, if they're watching the movie in theaters rather it's gonna be something new but uh, older movies particularly ones before 1948 will sometimes show up in other theaters so during the 1950s the Walt Disney Company undergoes a series of changes. Uh, it gets away from animated features to a degree. I mean, it's, it releases some, but it starts doing a lot more live action movies. And in particular, it gets into live action nature documentaries. Now these live action nature documentaries are, are, are extraordinary and unique for the time. I mean, Jacques Cousteau was doing stuff around the same time, but other than that, Especially, particularly when it came to mammals, there was very little opportunity for average people to see animals in their natural habitat and, uh, and like undisturbed. It was really unlikely that you would see that. If you were just Joe Schmo, whoever, you would only see animals either in pictures, uh, very posed pictures, very non-natural pictures. If you saw them in film, it again, it'd be very non-natural positions or, or, uh, or scenarios that these animals would be in 
or um, you know very staged things, or you'd see them in a zoo. So these movies um, start coming out. It's it's Walt Disney's idea. His brother Roy is pretty closely involved in them as well, and they you know basically it's like how can we make movies for cheap so they contact these a, a series of different nature photographers and they start making these movies the first one they create is called seal island and when they go to release it they can't get a distributor because no one thinks it's going to be uh, successful so they create buena vista uh, distribution company just to just to release these movies and it is a huge success seal island followed by beaver valley uh, followed by the living desert uh, and then a series of other. These movies are explosively popular. They win Academy Awards. Crowds go nuts for them. Like people are just, uh, you know, it's, it's, they're seeing animals in, in, in color. And they're also like, there, there's a lot of questionable things going on with these movies. I might return to this in a, at another point down the line in the, in the podcast. But because like there's this folksy narration that is, you know, horribly inaccurate. Everything's very romanticized and sentimental. Uh, it's not it's not an accurate depiction of nature really but they are hugely successful and so successful to the to the point that that Disney starts releasing sound projector packages where they're selling 16 millimeter sound projectors along with prints of their true uh, true adventure nature documentaries um, they're selling them to people in their homes which is kind of this is like pretty much uh, the first especially in America as far as I know, that you can do this. Now, it's mostly affluent people that are able to afford to do this. I mean, and initially these things are intended, I think, for schools, like because they end up being like an educational tool, these documentary films that are, again, not very accurate that I watched all the way up into the early 90s I saw in school. Um, but it's not, so they're marketed at schools, but they're also marketed to, um, to churches and civic groups, but individuals are gonna buy them and like show them in their home and have like little garden parties. And you can, and you can buy also like shorter animated features that Disney has released at that point. I don't think they're putting out on 16 millimeter for sale. They're not putting out uh, Disney, you know, like major motion pictures like Fantasia and stuff like that. You're not able to get that at that point, but you are able to get some actual movies. Now, around the same time, in 1957, Columbia Pictures decides that it wants to get into the television business, and it creates a subsidiary called Screen Gems. And Screen Gems contacts Universal Studios about purchasing a package of films to air, to sell to affiliates to air on TV. So at this point, you have a lot of movies that have been released, and better or worse, whether they're good or bad, they're just like sitting on shelves in uh, archives somewhere, like in these studios. And at the same time, you have TV affiliates all over the country that, you know, they'll show whatever CBS or NBC or ABC, because these are the only three networks, they'll show whatever they sh want them to show, but, you know, at midnight or 10 o'clock, whatever, when they run out of material to show, the, they show a picture of the flag, they play the national anthem, and then it's just white noise and static and snow until 6 or 7 a.m. So the affiliates want to fill that time because why not get advertisers for that for that for those time periods? Why not use those hours? And then the movie studios are kind of conflicted because on one hand they want people to go to the movies and see like they don't they want people to see new movies. Um, so they don't want people to watch movies at home too much. But on the other hand they've got all this revenue they've already sunk into these movies so like why not do something with them? 
So the result is what's called the Shock Package, which was released in 1957, and then the Son of Shock in 1958. And what these are is Screen Gems purchases uh, first 52 films from Universal in 57, and then uh, the following year, 20 different films. And these are primarily horror movies. There's some spy movies, some other kind of random movies in there, but, but they're mostly horror movies, and some of them are really bad, like, like objectively bad B-movies that, that never really did well. They're all from 1948, but some of them, or I'm sorry, they're all from before 1948, but some of them are classics. Some of them are like The Mummy, uh, The Wolfman starring Lon Chaney Jr. Um, some of them are, are, are really good classic universal horror movies, like, the, like Dracula and that kind of stuff. So um, what ends up happening is the affiliates air these movies and they call them they call it like shock theater or, the, or they call it something similar to that and they get and they're recommended screen gems recommends that people hire like horror hosts to present these movies i mean i'm not sure they use the phrase horror host but they recommend getting some sort of host to present the movies and what you get is is not i mean there's some hosts that's just like you know some guy sitting in a chair kind of casually puffing on his pipe and talking about the movie, but you get some pretty out there horror hosts who start using props and costumes and hats and adopting names like Dr. Lobo, eventually Elvira is gonna come out of this scene, uh, a series of like fun, goofy hosts who embrace the camp, if they're, whatever, if they're showing good movies or bad, uh, they're gonna make them fun to watch, and uh, this helps create a whole generation throughout the late 50s and throughout most of the 60s this is where the Munsters and Adams Family all this stuff kind of comes from there's this, this resurgence of interest in monster horror and, and monster movies and that kind of stuff and it's all coming from the fact that they're playing movies on TV you're able to watch movies at home now also in 1957 ABC who is struggling they are the, the third of, out of three in terms of ratings, um, they're struggling. So they start a show that they called uh, Hollywood Film Theater. And they, they, they show movies during prime time that aren't, uh, again, they're probably going to be from before 1948. I'm not sure why 1948 seems to be the cutoff here. I really am not. But it seems like this was like a, a date that was very deliberately chosen for whatever reason. Things before it or after it were considered fair game or not. So there, so ABC starts, starts showing movies on Hollywood film theater. Um, and then a couple few years later on NBC, um, NBC uh, they start showing Saturday, they call what they call Saturday night at the movies. And they start showing like, these are new movies. These are movies that are maybe a year to three years old. These are as new as it gets. So if you miss something in theaters or if you really liked seeing something in theaters and wanted to watch it again, uh, you now knew that, like, well, at least I will have the option uh, to maybe see it on TV someday. Now, the whole, if it's a big movie, like, the whole friggin' world's gonna, like, grind to a halt, basically, and everybody's gonna be at home watching TV at the same time, um, but those options now exist. You can watch movies at home in America, but it's on your TV. In the meantime, America, Britain, Japan, and then a little bit later, once they're back on their feet again, uh, Germany, are, are working to try and create video. Uh, they've, you know, like actual video. They, they know, once they've got audio figured out, that it's, it's understood that video can be a thing too, that we can have better quality images and record them for much, much longer in one specific 
place. Um, they're trying to increase the duration uh, for how long these cassettes can be. And that's part of the idea. Like we need to have these video, like not in a reel to reel thing. It needs to be in like a manageable cassette, especially if we want to put this stuff out for home purchase. And they really want VHS to be able to be four hours long because they think that that's about how long an American football game is. So they want people to be able to record the American football. Um, but really they probably could get away with just a couple hours or so, two and a half hours for movies. The first video cassette is one called Umatic that comes out in 1971. Now, Umatic is, in 1970, like these different companies like uh, Japanese Victor Company um, or and Ampex and RCA and Sony uh, and Philips, they all agree that to use like a standard format for, for, for what they, this is the last time they'll do this, but they, they agree to create like a, a standard format for, for, for video. It's called the Umatic. It's large, it's clunky, it's very heavy, um, but it's video and it's a video cassette, but it never, it never makes it to home, like to the home markets. It's really just something that's used to record TV shows and, the, and, and that kind of thing, but it gets the ball rolling. It only, but it, it's only around for like a year or so. It doesn't really take off. Um, shortly after that, in terms of home markets, Cartrivision comes out in 1972. Now, Cartrivision is a pretty fascinating little idea that was basically like the early days of Netflix, where you would mail your movies back and forth. It was like that about you know almost 30 years before Netflix. Um, what it was was you would have to go to uh, Sears or JCPenney, whatever like, uh, you know, department store and purchase a Cartrivision TV set. And a Cartrivision TV set in 1972 was about $1,600. That comes to nowadays, that's like uh, $8,000, $9,000. So it's extremely cost prohibitive, which is its first strike. It's just, that's just not gonna really work. People that can shop, people that are shopping at JCPenney can't afford to spend nearly 10 grand, or you know, in their, in their time on, uh, on home entertainment. But what these TVs were, they were kind of like the hybrid VCR TV models that would come out in the 90s where it'd be like, they, you would insert the cartridge into the TV and you'd be able to play this cartridge and watch it on your little Cartravision TV. Cartravision meaning cartridge television, very creative. Um, so Cartravision releases these black cartridges, which are like uh, sports events, documentaries, fishing shows, that kind of stuff that you can purchase. Uh, you can own it and watch it and rewind it in your Cartravision TV. Whatever you want to do, it's yours. Enjoy. They also release movies in these red cartridges, and these movies are—they're—they're they're limited in length. They're only—they're—they can only fit two hours on there, so they're not putting Doctor Zhivago on there, I guess. Um, but but most—you know, not most, but lots of titles end up on this in this format. There's a lot of titles that end up, and you can you can you can watch these, but you can't purchase them. You can't purchase them to watch. You can only rent them. And if you do rent them, you can't rewind them. Even though that feature exists on the TV, it won't work with the red cartridges. You have to send them back for the, uh, for the company to rewind them, and then you'll pay again for the rental. And again, these, and also these movies aren't coming to and from your home. You have to go to JCPenney or wherever you purchased your Cartravision TV from and request a movie, go, and they'll, they'll, it'll be shipped away for it. They'll mail it to that site. 
cartridge vision will then you'll go back to there a couple days later pick up your movie and go home and watch it so it's a bit of a process uh, cartridge vision on top of being extremely expensive and kind of frustrating for people uh, they also end up having an, an issue where a large contingent of their movies their rentable like feature movies are stored in a uh, in a warehouse. I want to say that I read that it was in Atlanta, Georgia, but don't quote me on that. But uh, it's hot wherever it is, and humidity and video do not gel well together, and they lose a, uh, a massive amount of their of their product, and they end up disappearing about 13 months after they started on the market. Shortly after Cartravision, we get Betamax. Sony introduces Betamax, so now we have a, uh, a cassette video, basically. VCR has already existed, uh, you know, video, uh, uh, what is that? Video cassette recorders is what it stood for, but they were really more used as players. Um, so you have Betamax VCRs and you have VHS VCRs shortly after when um, JVC in 1976 and releases VHS in Japan that catches on the next year in 77 in America. So, and you know, Laserdisc is actually, is actually right after that in 1978. Uh, and that's, I'll, I'll get into that in a moment, but uh, we think of this period, the late 70s and the early 80s as the jostling uh, period where Betamax and VHS are, are trying to like duke it out to see who's gonna end up being on the home market. Uh, Betamax has slightly better uh, audio and visual quality, but it does. The duration isn't as long. You can't fit as much on there. And I want to say that they're slightly more expensive, so they end up um, not winning that little uh, that 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 competition, that economic competition, and VHS ends up taking over. So in the early '80s, you when Betamax and VHS were still available. You could rent a VCR, and I described this in my previous podcast with uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, where you would basically, you would go to your local rental uh, store, which in the early 80s was probably not going to be a franchise, it was probably going to be a mom and pop type place, and you would rent your, VH, your VCR, uh, and that would come like in a large kind of leather and plastic bag thing and you would take that home and you would have a manual with it and you'd hook it up to your television and uh, you would also rent your, your Betamax or your VHS's and you'd rent probably quite a few and you'd have yourself a really nice weekend but you probably didn't own a VCR. That 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 ended up happening, you know, that got more and more uh, affordable as the 80s marched on and, and, and houses ended up having those things, particularly once Betamaxes were kind of phased out, people really got into uh, VHSs and of course with VHSs, you can now purchase the VHS. Uh, you can, you know, illegally copy the VHS like my mom's ex-boyfriend did, um, and now you can watch almost movie you want. You know, we, now you can watch almost whatever movie you want, wh whether you rent it or purchase it. You can watch it at home, uh, and that's going to be a tremendous game changer. The first rental company, as far as I could tell, was one called Magnetic Video which is fitting, uh, out of Farmington Hills, Michigan in 1977. Farmington Hills, Michigan, by the way, being like a town or so over from my old stomping grounds, but it was definitely a, a pretty affluent town. Um, there was rental, like there was, in, in Germany at least, there was this one guy named, oof, what's his name? 
uh, Baum. I can't remember his first name or something with an E. Eckhard, Eckhard Baum, B-A-U-M. Now in 1964, 68, he starts running out, you know, Super 8s and that kind of stuff. And he starts collecting movies around to his friends. And as far as I know, he's actually still doing that and like, you know, turn it into an actual business. But the first real company was Magnetic Video. Um, they started a mini franchise, but most, most rental houses or most rental businesses in, in, in the early 80s and late 70s would have been mom and pops. But of course, the behemoth that arises out of the 80s in video rental is Blockbuster Video. Now, Blockbuster Video was the, it started under a guy named David Cook, but it was the idea of his wife, Sandy. David Cook lived in Texas and he was not in oil, but like he sold software to oil companies and there was kind of like a dip in the industry, I guess, at that point. So he was looking around for other ideas to, to you know, to stay rich. And his wife, Sandy, suggests video rentals. She says, I think this is going to be like a big deal. It's really going to take off. So he franchises out a video store from a local company that's, I forget what it's called, but it's very small. And one of the first things he wants to do is because he, he's thinking along like the Roy Kroc McDonald lines is that he wants to paint the inside blue and yellow. He, he really uh, thinks that the, the, uh, like branding your business with a, with a color scheme, like bold color scheme is really important. And this company won't let him do it. So he says, fine. And he leaves and he starts his own company and he calls it Blockbuster Video. And he creates his first one in 1985 in Texas. By 1987, uh, he's bought out for millions of dollars by this guy named Wayne Huizenga and a couple other investors. And they really take that whole McDonald's uh, format, that whole model, and massively expand it. And they, are, they also win that same year, they win a, uh, a court case against Nintendo. So they can start running out Nintendo games, which will, of course, later on apply to PlayStation, Xbox, whoever. So Blockbuster Video is able to very quickly market itself as uh, like the premier place to go on Friday and Saturday nights with your family to, to, to get new releases uh, to, to watch and to rent video games for your kids for the new, for the new gaming systems. Uh, and again, they're very family oriented. A lot of these mom and pop places that are in competition with them or are struggling to stay in competition, they will thrive in one of two ways. Either they will turn towards like art films and foreign films and get real cool and snooty and have like all kinds of cult classics and then go down go down that road uh, or they're gonna just carry porn um, they'll carry other movies too but they're gonna have a little room uh, it's gonna say 18 over adults only above it and there'll be a little curtain like this curtain of shame that you part and you walk back in there and you and you see the porno movies with their suspiciously large cover boxes that are way larger than the other VCR cover VHS cover boxes for some reason um, and and this is gonna be like the bread and butter for for a lot of these other companies that aren't blockbuster blockbuster will have some competition like Hollywood Video who it attempts to buy out at one point and, and is unsuccessful. There's gonna be Family Video as well. Um, but for the most part, Blockbuster becomes a cultural behemoth. I mean, there is just really no, um, there's no end in sight for their money. At the, at, like at the, at the top of their game, uh, they have 9,000 video stores across the country and VHS and Blockbuster Video in like the mid 90s say, they seemed like they owned the world and would never go anywhere ever. But here we are now, they're both gone. Um, Blockbuster Video does falter, it does 
uh, stumble, but it, 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 it creates some kind of important cultural milestones along the way, um, but eventually it does fall apart. It, it, it does make, it's, it along with other video stores make uh, movies more available and, and studios start presenting movies available for purchase, not just in Blockbuster Video, but you know, they're gonna make different stores like FYE and Suncoast and uh, Best Buy, places where you can purchase VHS copies of movies. Usually they're gonna be you know, like the Blockbuster, well, I mean, I didn't mean to say blockbuster. Usually they're going to be like the um, the big successful movies and they're, they'll be priced accordingly. Some harder to find movies, you're just, they're going to be priced uh, prohibitively where you just, they don't they don't want you to be able to buy them. They'll be available for sale for like $75 or $100, like which most people are not going to spend that kind of money for a VHS tape. Um, now, Laserdisc comes around, like I said, in 1978 and it has developed from technology that had been around since 64. There was this uh, capacitance uh, electronic disc that had been in, uh, in development from RCA for a long time where it was almost like a record with an actual digital groove and a stylus that would come down inside the uh, player and like, like a record player almost and, and read it. Um, but by the time they actually put this on market in 84, Laserdisc had already come out in 78 and really kicked off the whole digital uh, approach to movie watching, which, you know, people were in awe at the quality of these movies. They were annoyed that you had to watch them in four parts because you had to flip over your, you know, the Laserdisc came, like it usually would be like two very large silver records looking things and you would watch your movie. If it was a two hour movie, you'd fit like half hour on each side. Um, DVDs in 95 to 99, when those really start coming around. Um, that's gonna supplant laser discs very easily because you can fit an entire movie on one side, including bonus features and all kinds of stuff, that, like audio track commentary, things that uh, had never been there before. So they end up really being uh, the, the new digital format and Blockbuster and everybody else uh, makes that transition pretty smoothly. Uh, it, 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 the, the writing's on the wall for VHS uh, along the way to, to that it's time for that to go. They are going to have a lot more to do, uh, Blockbuster will, with um, with creating a market for Blu-ray when it comes to like the whole point where Blu-ray and HD DVD are kind of duking it out in the early 2000s because Blu-ray comes around, I want to say in 2000, Blue, uh, HD DVD in 2006. Um, and at that point, um, there's like this kind of like with VHS and Betamax where there's like this jostling to see which one's going to come out top, on top. Well, Blockbuster puts its money behind Blu-ray, which puts Blu-ray uh, on top and HD DVD becomes forgotten the way CED has been forgotten. Now, I worked for Blockbuster Video for quite a few years from like 99 to 2003, off and on in a few different locations. Um, the first one I worked at was great. It was me and a, a bunch of my high school friends basically took this place over and you know, we closed that place at midnight and uh, go back to my buddy's house and watch the movies and play the video games that we had rented from Blockbuster until five or six in the morning, uh, get up at three or four in the afternoon and go back and do it again because that's my life when I was 19 or 20 years old. Um, it was a nice, it was a fun time, and I definitely caught up with a lot of movies. But one of the downsides of working at Blockbuster Video was the, uh, just the furious 
reactions that we got to late fees. People hated late fees. I had one guy threaten to sue me personally because it was late fees. I had another man threaten to slit my throat because of late fees. Um, and, and all kinds of people just gave me a hard time in between. People hated late fees. Now in 1999, to rent a new release movie from Blockbuster Video where I worked in Michigan, uh, it was $4.29, which is pretty steep, especially when you think that today you could rent any movie you want practically uh, through Amazon Prime or wherever for you know instant streaming for $6 or so. But it was $4.29 and you had it for one night and if you didn't get it back the you know uh, within a 24-hour period or whatever, maybe, maybe it was maybe like a 36-hour period, but if you didn't get it back within the allotted time frame, then you would get charged another 429 and if you read two or three movies and were you know two or three days late or god forbid forgot those movies or lost those movies that that late fee could really get really high really fast and this is according to myth what prompted reed hastings in uh, 1998 to form netflix uh, supposedly he had rented a, apollo 13 and uh, lost it and ended up paying 40 or 50 bucks to Blockbuster Video and then just went out and came up with this idea. That's what he says. His partner, uh, his former partner, Mark, I don't know, Mark Netflix, whatever the hell his name is, um, he, he disputes that and says that that's just a story that Reed Hastings made. But I think there's a kernel of truth in it anyways because I think it helps explain why Netflix ended up doing so well because there was no late fees with Netflix. You would rent the movie and have it for as long as you wanted. So what Netflix was, how it started out in, in 98 and 99, was that it was there were DVDs and you would, instead of, you know, not like Cartervision, these were movies that you could ship to and from your home and you could have them show up there uh, and, the, and the collection was enormous. You could watch, you know, all kinds of movies. Blockbuster and other similar places, these are brick and mortar buildings that could only hold so many films in them. So if you wanted to watch film classics or, or especially the non-classics that just happen to be old movies, uh, you could now suddenly have access to them again through Netflix so people were excitedly being able to watch movies that they had not seen in quite a long time. In the year 2000, Netflix is struggling a little bit and it goes to Blockbuster and it offers itself up to Blockbuster for $50 million, which, I mean, that's... That's chump change to them at that point to, uh, to Blockbuster. But they turn them down, uh, much to their detriment. They turn them down. And within four years or so, they're trying to do, maybe two years, they're trying to basically do their own version of Netflix through Blockbuster. Uh, it doesn't take off. Redbox comes out in 2002, and that is a vending machine for movies. And this vending machine is basically something that you can purchase for your business uh, put in front of your CVS or whatever and your grocery store and you would get a, a cut from the profits kind of like an ATM machine and then people uh, customers would just be able to rent not the older movies but but big hits the uh, recent hits they could rent those and wouldn't have to go to a movie store then they could just um, you know do it with as part of their normal errands going to the local grocery store or whatever so that that ends up cutting into blockbuster video a little bit as well, uh, but you know, to a to a lesser degree than Netflix, Blockbuster is really going to struggle once Amazon gets in on the streaming game. Now, Web TV had been around since like '97 or so. It didn't really take off, and I mean, and of course, 
Uh, I've done this whole conversation without mentioning, say, HBO and, and premium cable, uh, which is you know also an option for, for, for at-home movies. Uh, and, and again, like those movies would be somewhat limited uh, and, and played over and over again. But um, once, once Amazon gets in on the game, it's all over for Blockbuster. They start their streaming service in 2006. Uh, web TV and that kind of thing is almost already out of the picture by that point. Uh, the following year, Netflix gets in on it in 2007. They start creating a streaming device, a streaming platform, and they start phasing out their, their, their disc rental, and they're, they're done with that within a couple years. Uh, the next year, 2008, Hulu's in on the game. Now, that's, that's, that's streaming. That's it's television shows mostly, but there are some movies on there, too. By 2010... Blockbuster has wrapped it up. It's time for them to declare bankruptcy, and it's all over. And we are now uh, in a whole new, different state of things. Where before, in any given moment in the zeitgeist, there might be one or two movies that are uh, maybe going to be future classics. Now there is so much in the zeitgeist. I mean, you have so many different movies that, that depending on word of mouth, depending on uh, how they're received, they will uh, either explode and be tremendously popular, or maybe they'll just, be, they'll just uh, quietly disappear and end up a, a, a classic only in your house, like Mordecai is for me. We live in a time of polarization uh, but we also live in a time of cultural diversification. And that's going to come with some pluses and minuses, I guess. On one hand, you don't have people all just in agreement that such and such is a great movie. And maybe it was easier to think that, you know, say It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie because everybody saw that when it came out. And if they didn't see it when it came out, there was a clerical error uh, and it ended up being it entered the public domain, it ended up being shown on TV over and over and over again, uh, for, for not just for Christmas, but, but over and over again for decades. A similar thing happened sort of with, with Casablanca. So people, you know, had classics drilled into their head. Now, something that is classic to one person is maybe completely unfamiliar to someone else because niche uh, marketing and niche entertainment is the way of the game now. Everybody just kind of burrows in to their own subculture and sometimes those subcultures explode like with the Marvel movies and sometimes they hum along for uh, you know for decades like manga um, in their own kind of field you know. So is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I don't know. It's just a thing. Uh, part, you know if we feel separated from each other now, that might be because we don't have as many movies in common. But on the other hand, if you find somebody that loves a movie that's obscure like you do, then all of a sudden you've got a friend that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had. So that kind of helps, I think, paint the importance of the development of VHS and uh, different ways to watch movies at home. So that about does us for today, other than one last segment that I wanted to add in. I want from now on to wrap up each podcast with a different recommendation, um, some sort of you know, a movie or a piece of art or other kind of you know, creation, somebody else's work that I want to plug. 
that's just because I think it has value and maybe it doesn't get enough attention and I'm going to take advantage of this platform to push my opinions on you people. So today I'd like to recommend a wonderful album from 1994 by a band called Link, L-Y-N-C. I'm not even positive if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but, they're, but they're called Link, and the album is called These Are Not Fall Colors. It was their only full-length album. It was on K Records out of Olympia, Washington. And 94 is a very special year for me, for music, uh, for, for the world, for music. This is the early 90s and the mid-90s, uh, and especially 94, is a, there's an explosion of indie rock and an explosion of unique uh, alternative music and Link is just an incredible band that released this beautiful work that is so jangly and jarring and melodic and weird and emotional and it feels like a genre being constructed as it was being recorded. Um, it feels like, it, I mean, it's just it's just so incredibly raw. One of the musicians from that band, a guy named Jer James Bertram, uh, around the same time was a guest musician on the Beck album, One Foot in the Grave, which is easily the best Beck album in my opinion. And that album has a beautiful rawness to it. Um, now that's an acoustic album. These Are Not Fall Colors is, is an electric album, but that, that rawness I think is there for, for that Link album as well. It's not available on Spotify. You can find it on YouTube. I strongly recommend finding it on vinyl or you know purchasing it, maybe somehow getting money to these guys for this album that they released 25 years ago. But it is a beautiful album that's underappreciated and I recommend people check it out. And one last note about music. Uh, I had some comments about the opening track. I wanna thank my friends Jimmy and Morgan who play drums and guitar on that track respectively that's me playing bass and our old band uh, rain is wet from ooh, a decade and a half ago or so uh, I'm not sure what I'm not sure that I'm gonna stick with that as my opening music I want to place a, a call to any musicians if you're if you want to be on this podcast if you want me to use your music in this podcast if you're a friend or if you're a stranger uh, reach out to me and we can talk about using your music to open up my podcast. And if and whether you're a musician or not, if you want to follow me, if you're if you if you're interested uh, keeping up with the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter. That's at Travis B Roy. That's Travis B is in Brandon Roy on Twitter. So that's it for today. Thank you so much, everybody. I send lots of love. Take care.